Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This episode, your hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. This week, we're dialed in and focusing on the questions of the week. We want to thank each and every one of you over the previous couple of months who have sent in questions about wildlife photography of any sort to us, and we've built this podcast around a selection of those. So keep them coming. We want to keep these podcasts coming forward every couple of months to just feature on questions and tips and tactics to help everybody get dialed in to what we enjoy doing. Michael Morrow is going to host as far as running us through the questions and help keep us navigated this week. What do we got at the top of the list, Mike? You know, there's so many questions and they're all really good. There's no way we're going to get to all of them. So I think we'll just hit some. There's several that are related, so we'll hit those. If your question doesn't come up, just keep it coming. Just send it to us again, and I'm sure it'll make it on the list. But if we can do one of these podcasts every month, I think people would really dig just hearing. I mean, everybody's going to learn something from all of these. I'm going to learn something just from your guys' expertise on some of the – I mean, I know how I would do it, but I think you guys probably do things a little differently. So Sometimes I just leave the lens cap on. <laughs> just enjoy the, the whatever's in front of you and not push the shutter no you know we love the interaction and all sorts on, on all of our platforms so by all means you know keep sharing stuff with us and asking us and yeah i i like doing these podcasts i just roll along right so when it comes to these questions so what do we got hey before we get into the question speaking of sharing stuff with us uh, i want to throw a shout out to everybody that shares your images with us and and tags us in the wildlife images on instagram and in facebook some of those on facebook the images and videos be popping up once in a while and it, that's been great to see what everybody's out doing and uh what's been greater is to see where they're out doing it <laughs> but, <laughs> but we'll get into that in a little bit as well because i think some of these questions apply to that you mean poaching locations what was that question we got earlier today? It was kind of funny. You you answered. Uh, it's not on the list, but what someone your, asked about. What are your favorite locations? What are your favorite secret locations? Fa- I think yeah. is, and, and you said something like, if I told you that, then it wouldn't be a secret. It wouldn't be a secret. <laughs> <laughs> but so, let's just start yeah. with that one, because I think we addressed that. So if you go back and listen to the podcast we did about the blinds, the, f- the photography blinds, and what we got, the conversation was, is if you use a blind, you're going to get a totally different image and it could be in your backyard. It could be at the park down the street. You know, you, you're concealing yourself. You're getting down low. You're getting on water level. Not a public park where people are walking. That doesn't go over well. But a wildlife place, yes. A wildlife park, yeah. And okay. I'm thinking of places close to me. I mean, I know there's a couple of... Uh, they call them open space parks here in Colorado. And there used to be one that was full of foxes. And there's another one that's full of geese and cool waterfowl. And then there's another one that's got lots of deer and stuff. Well, there's tons of photographers there, but you very seldom will see someone working out of a blind getting a whole different angle. And I think that whole different angle could be your secret, right? Because you're going to get images that nobody else is getting. So that's one of those. For me, that was the answer I came to immediately is, I don't know that you need a secret spot as much as you might want to just change your technique and you're going to end up with a completely different image. Do a, yeah, do a common spot differently. Than yeah. A, I love that sidestep. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a I think great, that's a great answer. Yeah, but it's, you know, we, we frequently do mention locations on this podcast, but there are some places that just due to the masses of photographers and respect for the locals and other photographers that film in specific locations, we don't mention. We'll mention a broader geographic area, but we just can't do that. I mean, for those that really want to dig and find locations, it's all out there, everybody. It's on social media. People, you know, whether they're doing it knowingly and don't care or whether they're doing it naively, they post a percentage of the people out there post where they're taking the images. So it's it's I've learned more through Instagram in the past three years for locations than in the previous 20 years. It's, it's just it's there. It's more accessible than ever. So secret locations, everybody's got them. Everybody enjoys the peace and quiet of filming uh, an animal or, or an ecosystem on their own or with just a few close friends. And uh, all these places become more and more known and we end up sharing it with more people here and there. But and then, there's you know, there are other places that are private lands, too. Right. That a lot of people, you know, have those little nuggets that they can they can access on their own and, and create their own images and have that intimate experience. But it's just not fair for us to expose places at our secret locations, either because it's our resources that we rely on for our income and create these images or out of respect for other photographers. But that being said, you know, we do very frequently talk about great destinations with guests that we've had on you know we've got the great bear rainforest we've got churchill manitoba we've got yellowstone there's so many wonderful iconic places that create a wealth of photography and build portfolios that are frequently talked about and guided places you know svalbard norway you know the guadalupe island there's lots that come up through our podcast we just can't divulge it all and and if you think about it you know do that old thing where we say when we're raising our kids well you try and think of it from the other person's perspective you know if it was your secret spot and you were on the podcast you wouldn't have you know want to divulge it so we give and take that way you know there's definitely a ton of sharing but we can't say everything for secret spots because everybody's yeah, got them. and i would say i would recommend strongly that everybody adopt this philosophy but there, there's a couple times where i won't ever divulge a location unless you're going with me and number one is if it's private land and that's out of respect for the landowner, so they're not being inundated with calls, you know, as as Mark touched on. Uh, but the other one is, if somebody's given me a location, number one, I won't ever take anyone with me, and number two, unless I ask, and number two, I'll never divulge that location to anybody else. And that's just out of respect for the person who was kind enough to to give it to me. And I. You know, I think that we all should have enough respect for one another that, that that would be the case, but it's it's not necessarily. Some people just like to look like the resource, and if it's not their location, they're more than willing to share it just because they want people to think that they know where everything is. You kind of demonstrate a lack of respect for that individual that, that gave it to you initially, so I would strongly recommend that everybody kind of adopt that philosophy and have that respect for one another. I think for the most part, people do, but I have definitely gotten to places where I've, I've shared it with someone who assured me that they would never share it with anyone else, and they're there with a group of people. We've all been burned once or twice, and that's why you know, if I share a secret location, it's not a secret anymore. That's why I kind of have that frame of mind and have that thought process because you only have to tell one person. Only two people need to know for it not to be a secret. And I'll shut I up. Can't, about that I now. can't say that I have too many secret locations. Everywhere I go, somebody else knows about it. I mean, there might be a few out right. there, but 
Absolutely. Yep. You know, like Mark said, I think you spend enough time perusing Instagram, you can find an awful lot of information. But you still have to learn that particular area. I mean, they may say, yeah, Yellowstone, but, you know, Yellowstone's huge. So you're going to have to spend some time. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we have three questions that revolve around sharp images. So I'm just going to throw all three of these questions out. And I think just in our answers, I think we'll address each one of them. One of them is, how can you be sure your image is tech sharp? Another one is images looking focused on the viewfinder, but on a computer, it's fuzzy. And then the other one is, is how can you get sharp images with long glass using a 1.4 or 2.0 extender? So who wants to dial that one in to start us off? Well, I'll take the first part of that is pretty simple. I mean, if you want to know if an image is tack sharp or not, throw it into Lightroom, throw it into Photoshop, zoom in one-to-one. And if the detail is still in that image. You got, you still have the hair detail, still have detail in the eye. That's what you're looking for to try to determine if the image is tack sharp. You know, if you're shooting an antlered animal, you see every little detail in those antlers, you know, every little dimple, every vein line, you still have those details (laughs) when you zoom in one-to-one. For those of you that are just listening, Mark just did the double double flex guns. That's what I was laughing about. It wasn't about the detail, but zoom in one-to-one. You're going to be able to tell if that image is sharp. And quite honestly, if you've got a series of five or six of the same picture, find the one that's the sharpest. And then, you know, that's what you need to do your work on. That all, uh, that all revolves around after you've taken the image, but I think there's a lot of things you can do prior to out in the field. And I think that's where this is definitely going to Take us down some rabbit trails. Yeah. Well, and I, it might be kind of interesting for each one of us to talk about, you know, and I think we've talked about it a lot. You've started out back in the day where everybody used a tripod. Then now the ISO performance has gotten pretty darn good. So now you don't really necessarily need a tripod, but then you still have to have pretty good form and really know what you're doing with this gear to get a tack sharp image. So how about uh, Mark, give us your uh, three point stance. Honestly, I trust my camera on my D850. That's the camera body I'm using right now. I love it on the two to 500. I am tempted more every day for a whole list of reasons for the mirrorless cameras. But for right now on the back of my D850, I can zoom in. I know when I hit the back button on the plus magnification that I'm, if I don't four or five times, I know when I'm at a hundred percent and I click through and you're right. If you do a burst, which we all, um, I always do with wildlife, why wouldn't you do a burst of six images? There's going to be one or two that are sharper than the rest. You can see that, that I know right then I can move on to a different composition, but let me stop right there and say that in publishing, there is nothing more important than having a tack sharp image. Whether it's print, even printmaking, anything to do with successful business and wildlife photography, if it's not tack sharp, it's not it's not gonna make it. And, and there are ways pre taking the picture and post production that can help make an image sharper, but it has to be sharp. I've, I've seen, I, I just know that. If it's not sharp, it's not going right. Mind you, you can, you can make an eight by 10 print and sell it at a show and stuff like that, but I won't limit any image I market has to be tax sharp because I won't limit its ap- application. And I've said this uh, again and again. I Nothing would make me cringe more than having a client say, oh, well, we have this picture that you had on the cover of the magazine, but we want to do a trade show 
giant booth of it this year and pay you five times more and have to say, no, it's not sharp. I mean, it doesn't make sense. So that's the first foremost cutoff point for image quality is it has to be sharp to get edited. I look at it on the camera. I know with confidence on the D850 with its screen that is tax sharp. But for those that aren't confident in, the, in their back monitor on their camera, obviously, as Ron was alluding to, enlarging it to 100% or one-to-one on your software will show you that. And that's basically how I select the images from any collection as to which is the sharpest. In the field, absolutely. Technique is... A, a big deal for success. How you handle your camera, the stillness, the steadiness, the confidence you have in holding your camera on or off tripod. I still see a lot of people using tripods for still photos. Hey, if that works for you, by all means, it makes sense. It's been the standard forever. Trust me, though, it does compromise what you can get out of a wildlife photography experience. The stabilizers in the new cameras and, and lenses are really good. If you have the strength to hold these lenses, which are becoming lighter all the time, uh, something to keep revisiting if you don't. But if you if you do, it really gives you that much more flexibility. You can move yourself left and right, up and down by inches and really change the background or clear a branch that may be in front of an animal's eye or rotate to affect the light far more readily than if you're anchored on a tripod. So for still photography, that's that gives you that flexibility. However, again, it has to be sharp. And so shutter speed is important. And it's something I know we're going to get into later too with questions reviewing the list is ISO. But is keeping your shutter speed up so that it's sharp enough, but you don't, even with the two to five, I know I'm going on a little bit here, guys, the two to five on the 850, if I can get a sharp image at a 30th of a second, not everyone is sharp. I'll guarantee you that, but I'll do a burst of 12 and there'll be two sharp ones in there. And I prefer that technique personally over ramping my ISO off the charts to keep the shutter speed up. There's a compromise there, and it's something everybody has to experiment with and test. And the best way is, is to do it somewhere not in the field. Know the limitations of what you can do physically and the gear you're using can do by just practicing at home. You know, go out in different situations and, and experiment at lower ISO or lower shutter speeds and just see what you can get away with. And, but again, it you always have to zoom into 100% to make sure it's tax sharp. And sorry if I went on too long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can go on too long about this because... The other thing that you can do, I, th I see a lot of people out in the field. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but if you're shooting with some of these modern cameras, sometimes you'll see people holding the camera out in front of them and they're using the, the big monitor on the back of the camera just to compose the shot. That's great, but and it gives you a bigger view, but you're way better off to use the viewfinder. Bring your elbows in, hold it against your face, and then you have like three points of contact, which makes that camera much more stable when you're actually taking the picture. Thumbs always up. Some people will operate, they're more comfortable with their thumb down and their hand going over the top to either focus or adjust the zoom. And it does not add stability. It actually takes away from stability. So if you're, your thumbs up, your hands underneath the lens as a support leg, rather than adding movement to the lens by coming over the top. And I think that just your stance and just your your confidence in, in holding it still really addresses the one question where it looks in focus on the viewfinder, but it's not on the computer. It's fuzzy. Well, I think a lot of that could be because you're just not shooting at fast enough shutter speed. It's not being held steady. And yeah, on a smaller screen, it's going to look great, especially if you're not zooming into 100%. But 
if you just quickly look at it, you're like, oh yeah, I got that and move on. You really just need to focus on your technique is what, what's going to really help most people. And then if you don't have that technique down, I would say use a tripod. And like Mark said, I think you are going to miss some stuff, but that's okay. It's better to have a few really good tack sharp images than a bunch of images that are just so-so. And then as far as the 1.4 and the 2.0, the extenders, I've just never used them. So I don't, I can't speak to them. I didn't, I used to use them, but I could never get a sharp image. So it's either use your feet to walk in or move out. Although a lot of the new ones, I hear nothing about, but great stuff about the extenders. So maybe the newer technologies fixing a lot of that and the glass is better or whatever it is. But I don't hear too many people talking about a 2.0 that is just perfect. I think there are people out there that get it to work. 1.4 is oftentimes way better, but I'm hearing that more with the 2.0 with the with the Sony. It just seems that their their communication between the lens and the tele extender is far and above what Nikon and Canon have produced. And you know, I haven't heard anything from like the Micro Four Thirds, like the Fujifilm and any of those. But Sony seems to be getting tack sharp images with with the extenders on a regular basis. I would say a two X. I can't say that I've ever taken an image that I was completely happy with, except for maybe the the moon where I stacked a one point four and a two X on my you know on your five hundred millimeter, just trying to get as big and as tight an image of the moon as you could, a full moon as you could. I have had good luck there but that's going in with manual focus and just zooming in in live view and focusing just little bits at a time until you kind of get it fine-tuned and then using a cable release there's a lot of things that kind of go into that but i do there was a photographer i think he was in washington or oregon but he was doing like 2000 millimeter stuff he's stacking two 2x teleconverters on a 600 on a crop sensor body so he could shoot these eagles in a nest it was just insane. But the tripod setup that he had also, he had rails. He, everything was stabilized on that tripod as well. And I think if I'm not incorrect, I'm pretty sure he had two tripods that he had that thing set up on. So it was almost like the thing was laying on a table. So there's a lot that goes into stabilizing when you have that much zoom also. It's not just the 2X. It's, it's just that that multiplier gives you more zoom and it's it's harder to completely stabilize an image that is that tight. Hey, Mark, you were saying that you can get an image at a 30th to be sharp, but speak to, yeah, you can, but that animal can't be moving, right? Because you can be as steady as can be, but if the animal's moving, you're still going to get a blurry image because it's more of the movement that's throwing it off. So that's right. maybe speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. It's a static animal. So it's, you know, a deer peeking around a tree that's just frozen. And I have an opportunity to take 10 or 12 pictures in a burst and hope to get too sharp. The animal's not moving. I know I'm moving. And what you brought up was excellent about the position you're holding the camera. My elbows are always tucked against my torso. Unless one might be up a little bit to rotate the zoom, I'm tucked whenever I can be. There's that brace. So that helps. And I also I also do the Raycroft pose. And, and, for, <laughs> and for those for those of you out there that know about it are going to laugh your heads off. But it was funny when I was in the Rockies this fall, I had two days filming, uh, sharing the elk opportunity with Darren Bennett, who was a, a great photographer and a great guy. And it was funny on the second day, he said, there's something I've been meaning to ask you. I'm like, what's that? He says, why do you bend over and twist like that to take your pictures? <laughs> And it's only, I'll just tell people, it's only when he's shooting vertical. Yes. That he yeah, does absolutely. this. Yeah. And, and I can't it is the funkiest. I don't know how you got that or picked that up, but it is, 
you look at you and you look like I don't know, pretzel. Yeah, well, and and after the trip to Rockies, I was off in Newfoundland and I got a text from three photographer friends who stood and it posed in that position. All three of them lined up and sent it to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, so what it is, most photographers, I gather, when they're doing the vertical with a handheld camera with no tripod, take the right-hand side of the camera and turn it up to do the vertical. I turn it down, but I always want to be as low as I can be against these subjects, lower than eye level, and even beyond that, if possible. So I contort my whole body to the right, drop a knee and go lower. And there's something about that position for me feels stable. So I I have confidence in being off a tripod and getting those vertical pictures sharp. I can't explain why I do it, but it's something that's always worked. But it's, it's a matter of being comfortable with the camera yourself. I'll get off the Raycroft pose now. And bracing yourself with that gear and be- making it as stable as, as possible. As far as converters, in 25 years, I've never owned one. My humorous reply has always been my converters, my hiking boots. You know, I'm, I'm where I need to be. And it's even more flexible nowadays with these big sensors. You know, the shoot on a 45 megapixel camera at a 500 mil- millimeter lens and what we can do post-production with that size of file, I don't need a converter. I mean, it's effectively got its own converter with these big sensors. So I will always, I mean, and from the rumors of what's coming out for cameras, some of them are just getting bigger and bigger. And uh, But it's so I'll go that way. I'll opt for the larger sensor versus a teleconverter that can compromise the image. And it's the same thing. Historically, 1.4 clearly was superior to 2.0 for those that I knew owned them. I knew very, very few professional photographers anytime in the past couple of decades that owned a 2.0. But the 1.4 was popular. And same with the cropped camera sensors now, giving that that crop factor on lenses. And I was just texting a good friend this week. She was asking about buying a new camera and there was, you know, she was thinking the D500 was what she'd get because of the crop sensor. And I'm like, why would you do that when you get the D850 and have a full frame sensor, better image integrity, and then could play with crop and post. And in this case, it was budget. That was part of what was weighing her. The D500 is a cheaper camera body, but it's, uh, yeah, I don't go, personally, I'm not interested in teleconverters. That's not to say that the new technology doesn't make it possible. I haven't tried them, right? So maybe the 1.4 is fine on the new mirrorless cameras, and one would love it. I, I haven't tried them, but I've always just trusted in in the straightforward gear I've owned without playing that way, because I just heard too many bad things over over the years. Two things. One thing that every a lot of people forget when they're talking about you know, in the field tactics to try to get your images sharper is, yeah, you know, three points of contract, you're bracing, using skeletal structure as much as you can over muscular structure because muscles wear out. Your bones is going to support it if you can get it on something. If you can put your elbow on a rock or on your knee, all those things are important. But the thing that everybody forgets about or that we forget to mention is uh, the shutter release. And a lot of times, especially when these crazy behaviors are happening, you might even have enough shutter speed to be able to capture a sharp image. But if you're hammering on that shutter release because you get excited and your right hand moves now, you're adding movement to that image as well. So just get in the habit of just barely rolling your finger across that shutter release and you're you're going to see your image quality jump almost immediately just with that little tidbit. I have one other to add to that, and you need to speak to it, Ron, because you mentioned it in the previous podcast, and it pertains to this. 
But one time you were out shooting last year and you shot over a hot car. Yeah, stay away from thermal zones because you might be doing everything right again. You shoot at, it's daylight, shoot at two thousandth of a second, but you're shooting over the hood of a warm car and you're shooting through air that's, you know, two or three degrees Fahrenheit or close to zero. And the heat waves coming up from that engine create basically what you would see on a really hot day in the desert. You've got waves that it's going to make it impossible for you to get a sharp image. So get away from those thermal zones when you're shooting in a situation like that. And if you're shooting from a vehicle, it's just you've got to be aware it's going to happen if you're shooting out the window of a vehicle too, because the air inside is going to be warmer than the air outside. So it causes the same movement. And so I would, I would say do everything you can to get away from those thermal zones when you're shooting on and around a vehicle. I had that happen last week uh, in a beaver float plane filming out the window. There's certain positions I could move the camera and didn't see it, but because the exhaust is three feet in front of where I'm filming, if I stuck it out the window much at a certain angle, all you'd get was those heat waves. It's something I had to be careful of. Yep. So I think that that covers that. I mean, I'm sure there's many, many other things, but if you just focus on the things that we just talked about, that's going to greatly improve. And then if you have further questions, get back to us because there's probably a bunch of other things that we could give you tips on. All right. So a little different one is, does it help to wear camouflage to get better results in the field? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us why it's absolutely. No, I. it depends on where you're at and what you're photographing. I think birds probably more than ungulates. It's more important to be completely concealed because birds are a lot more nervous. And I think, you know, this is where the blind thing comes in is, I, you know, shooting, whether it be waterfowl, whether it be grouse or wading birds, shorebirds. I think if you can conceal yourself and know that your subject is going to be in a particular area, you're going to have a lot more success because the, the movements and the behaviors are going to be a lot more natural. We get away with, we've shot either with camo netting over the top of us or with ghillie suits, and you still get that natural behavior. They don't necessarily, it's just breaking up your form. It's not that you're blending in. It's just breaking up your form. I think that's more important than, than you blending into your background. When I've worn your ghillie suit, that was the closest I've ever felt to being a Sasquatch. It was so cool. <laughs> well, and you never know when the, when the Squatch is going to come along. And that's, I mean, if you see the images of the Squatch, they almost look like they are they are wearing a ghillie suit. Right, right. So I'd be accepted into the clan. So the only time that I ever wear camouflage is if I don't want people to see me. I'm doing it. I'm wearing it because I want to blend in with what I'm shooting from a distance so that people don't say, hey, there's a photographer over there or, you know, whatever it is. And then if I do wear camouflage, nine times out of ten, the reason I'm wearing it is because it's functional. It's more performance driven. So if you look at a lot of these brands that make camouflage clothing, so you got Sitka or Kuyu or I don't know, there's a, a bunch of brands out there. It's very functional and sometimes it's way better. I mean, you can't get it in a solid pattern. So if you want something that's going to keep you warm, keep you dry, functionally just comfortable, sometimes that camouflage is the best, best way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of those brands, for the past 
few years, Kuyu guide jacket and Kuyu pants, I live in those things in the field. And uh, Stone Glacier pants now, I love those too. I bought a pair of those this summer and I lived in those for this fall's trips. They were warm, breathable zippers that open up down the side. So if you're heating up, the air, cool air comes in immediately. Extra padding on the knees, flexible material. There's no plumber's crack. You go down low to get your shot, <laughs> the pants the pants stay up, people, and they flex. They're so comfortable. And if the knees get wet from kneeling or the bottom of your pants, half an hour later, it's dry. It's magic. So this stuff has just revolutionized field gear, in my opinion, both the Kuyu brand and the Stone Glacier. I've got them in my duffel bag and, and just switched them out every couple of weeks. <laughs> but you can get the camel. Or you can get solid patterns. And so for some situations, I now I have these outfits in just a solid pattern, but it's all muted colors. It's a gray or a green. So I blend in for the exact reason that you alluded to, Michael, because for years I argue I was on red tundra in the far north, but I wore my red and blue jacket and, and it just it was more visible. I try to blend in now. But I, on top of what you guys said, I also want to say as professional wildlife photographers, we all have those situations where we go to these destinations where the animals of some level have habituation to humanity to facilitate what we're doing. It may be national parks, it may be somewhere, urban areas or something where they're just used to people and camouflage isn't required. But that being said, we also have lots of destinations where the animals are not used to people and are very spooky and are very wild and like some of my whitetail situations are like that and i will be in a blind or i will be in camouflage and hidden that way so simply from where i sit camouflage is very useful when the animals are spooky you need to do it it, it really helps make it possible and, and whether it's the clothing you're wearing or a blind you're in or if you're in a kayak some situations with loons you don't need to have it camouflaged other situations in the kayak or floating blind with waterfowl you have to build a blind around it right to hide oneself so i think it all depends on the situation and i think any wildlife photographer would have camouflage in their closet or their repertoire for when they need it but it's not always necessary so i think it's important to have and there are there are times many times every year that i need to wear it but it's not always necessary. But some of the new gear, like you said, Michael, I mean, really, I can't believe for like 10 years, I hiked Alaska and the Yukon with green rubber boots with a felt liner and blue jeans. I mean, <laughs> the boots could easily tear open any second and the blue jeans got wet and they stayed wet. You know, the stuff that we have available now, it's just like the camera gear we buy, the backpacks we buy to protect our camera gear, the clothing, unbelievable compared to what the... Oh, what they call the guys in in Alaska who climbed Mount Denali, the with the sourdough sourdough boy. They did it in one day. The route's not there anymore because the mountain shifted and and there was an avalanche and took that route out. But they went up and down that mountain with sourdough donuts in one day. And the boots and the clothing they had back then ridiculous, redonkulous compared to yeah. what. We could, you know, this clothing now. So look at the some of these brands. And again, I'd have both camouflage and muted colors. Uh, that's the way I prefer to go now. But that's my two cents. Yeah. So I guess you don't really need it, but it is functional. But in some situations, it does come in handy. Yeah, I have two. I have two or three different ground blinds I use for photography, depending on the situation. They pop up their backpacks. You know, you need it sometimes. Depends what you're into. Yep. Well, and I think you're going to get some different stuff. I mean, after doing that podcast with the blinds, it's like there's all yeah. kinds of, of stuff that came up that I was like, yeah, because I've, I've done it, but I haven't done it recently. And I was thinking there's a lot of opportunity to 
to get some different stuff using a blind. I thought about you and I sitting on the sharp tail leck and fighting that stupid pullover blanket while Mark's kicked back on the (laughs) turkey chair. Yeah, I love that. You know, I wish uh, there was times this fall on these trips. I wish I have one of those backpacks. I wish I'd brought it with that fold out chair and support underneath. It's just built into the little frame and they're lightweight. It's uh, those blinds. I'm that podcast hasn't aired at this point in time. I look forward to hearing it because some of those blinds, there's one you can camp out in overnight and just be ready for daybreak. Or maybe you go out partway through the night. I don't know, whatever you're into. But yeah, it's they have some cool designs. Mm-hmm. I was kind of hoping yep. to hear at the end of the podcast that you had one for each of us guys. What happened? <laughs> hey, <laughs> well, you never know. Gonna, you never know. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. All right. So let's, let's hit another one here. Oh, this is a good one. How do you find time and energy and inspiration to edit? So nobody's comments. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes the inspiration comes because you know what you got or you think you know what you got. And so I've gotten in trouble because as soon as I hit the door, get home, I drop everything and I head down and start downloading images because there's something in there that's got me so excited that I want to see if it is what I think it is. And I think you have those times as a wildlife photographer and what, you know, I'm talking about a particular shot. And then there's other times where it's everything that I can do to convince myself to go download and, and then back up those images because I'm not really excited about the shoot necessarily. So I know where this question stems from. I think Going through those images and then going back through at a later date, it almost gets me excited again because you hit those. And Mark's talked about this before. You you go through and you know what those highlight images are going to be. And so you kind of look for them and you work on those immediately. But then it's when I go back through and I kind of find some hidden gems once in a while. That's, uh, you know, that's what's changed me from going through and first thing I do is delete. And it's been because Mike, what you've said, you you're hanging on to them because you, you find those hidden gems and then you never know what somebody's going to ask for. You've got editors that are asking for this goofy off the wall stuff that when you're in the field, you would never think about shooting it, except you got a request for it. Now you kind of seek out those opportunities and they might not be the, the ones you're going to put on the wall, but they're definitely images that could pay a bill or two. You know, that somebody's going to use as a as a stock image. You know, the, the energy for me comes from knowing what I got initially and then going back through. And it's just kind of a good way to relive the trip for me that, that kind of takes me back through some of those images from the past. I know you I, guys have got far more experience with that. but I think everybody listening out there, all of you know that feeling, that passion about the results. I mean, we that's why we do this the excitement. We, we have those trips those photo shoots where we just can't wait a second longer to see what the results those highlight images you're talking about ron how they turned out so there's no effort after a successful trip to edit i mean it's like i can't wait to get the top 40 pictures off of there and there's always a few it's like that caribou silhouette i mean i had to see that that day so initially the first round no effort it's exciting. It's fun. And it, and then it's fun to see what we can do with them with the software. What We shoot it in RAW, and it looks good on the camera back, but it's going to look that much better when we're done with it. How much better is it going to be when it's fully edited and finished and, and the colors have been adjusted and the contrast and the detail and any cropping if it's necessary? So I'm always excited to get through that. But it, 
after that point, I think, it, it, yeah, you summarized it perfectly, Ron. I mean, it's nice to revisit it later, too, because they're guaranteed there'll be other gems that surface six months later by looking at it, if time permits, to go back through a shoot and a trip. But at the same time, as professionals, you know, whether it's Michael shooting video or, or us shooting stills, it's it's a for the most part of volume industry. So we need to get this done. We need to edit. And like you said, Ron, cover all the bases, some of the most obscure images, you know, that get requested. It, it all has to be in the portfolio. So that's, to me, I mean, winter still has photographic opportunities, but winter's the big editing season. Fall is shoot, shoot, shoot. Winter is edit, 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 and then market like mad once they're edited and hope to pay the bills. But it's it's all part of the process and it's there are times you know let's let's say this listen to wild and exposed podcast and your editing will go much faster <laughs> well that's what i was going to say for inspiration because a lot of that's some of my favorite time is i love having four or five or ten thousand images to go through and i know i've got all day or all evening and i'll put on a good podcast and then just start going through it and take your time and just find those hidden gems or find the ones that you knew were good anyways. The way I do it, and it's mostly, I think, probably because of a lot of the projects that I get given. A lot of these people, when I'm done shooting a project, they want those images like right now. It's not like I have a week to get them. Sometimes I do, but most of the time I don't. And most of the time I'm super excited to show them anyways, because if I can show them that we're producing good stuff while they can see it that same day or the next day. There's a lot of times where I'll go back. Let's say we shot all day and I know that there's some good stuff in there. I'll go back to the hotel. I'll download everything and I'll quickly go through and I'll know which ones are good that I want to focus in on. I'll process 40, 50, 60, throw them on my phone and I'm sending them to the client immediately. Cause I want them just as excited about that shoot as I am. And you know, it's going to, is it going to bring me back? Is, are they going to be super jazzed the next day to go out and shoot? Because all the stuff we got today was really good. And we're going to get some more of that tomorrow. Or, I mean, there's so many reasons, but I put on a good podcast and I learn a lot. You know, you don't have to pay attention to audio. I can't do it when I'm editing video. Cause I got to listen to the audio a lot of times, but when I'm doing stills, I, I find the time, I have the energy and the inspiration a lot of times is just listening to a good podcast. I don't listen to ours because we do it. Stop. But but there's plenty of other good <laughs> podcasts out there that there's so much good information that you can get. But not as good. To every one of ours <laughs> after. I, just, I enjoy it. I have many other podcasts that I certainly download and enjoy, but I, I like hearing ours at least once to know what we've covered and I always I'm always learning too, right? So... Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess cool. I do listen to ours, but I'll hear it while it's being yeah, edited. For sure. You know, so I'll, I'll get to hear it twice. But like you say, there's so many good podcasts. And someday we should do a whole podcast on all the other podcasts that we listen yeah. to so that people could cool. get dialed into some of that stuff. Or maybe that's a I like that idea. I did yeah. one. On, I listened to one on UFOs recently. I just loved it. <laughs> so different and entertaining. Well, wasn't for a whole you, podcast you need on. to find one episode. on Sasquatch. Oh, so was, I got that was Joe Rogan with Dan Aykroyd. It was I really that was oh, a good. Oh yeah, one. I did that, listen that, to that one too. Ate up two and a half hours of one of my drives. It was good. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. So I think we got that one. Here's a good one. Do you prefer shooting in Kelvin or the auto light setting? Neither. Ron. Someone else can take it. Sorry. <laughs> I I use because the soft the software is so good. I use 
the auto settings most of the time, but most of the time I'll shoot in in cloudy. And then, you know, if it's if it's a bluebird day, I'll switch to daylight. If the light is, you, you know you're going to have that morning light and you've got time to do it, I will switch to Kelvin for the morning only. Uh, midday, I just go with daylight because you can fine-tune those adjustments in Lightroom and you can do it for... 300 images if you need to. Where I have to be careful is I do some other stuff on the side. So I'll do real estate photography. And where I have to be careful is uh, that I don't have it set to a fluorescent, you know, color setting. And I'm going out in the field because that is going to jack you up and you're never going to be able to recover it because you're moving it too much. And the colors will just never be what you saw. Right. So it, it is something that you have to be careful of. And I know a ton of even professional photographers that the computer and the camera is good enough. So they just leave it set on auto, auto white balance and let the camera make the decision. I'm not quite that trusting, but I do use those settings as a baseline. I change mine all the time. And I think I do shoot in Kelvin a lot, mostly for video. And a lot of times if we're shooting a project and I got three or four cameras, we want them all looking the same. So we will call out, Hey, we're shooting it. 5400 kelvin and we'll set every camera to 54 so that way it's always the same and there's a lot less work to do in post-production but when i'm shooting stills if i'm shooting on a sunny day but i'm shooting in shadows i'll use the shadow if i'm shooting in cloudy i'll use the cloudy if i'm shooting in daylight i'll put it on daylight because i think that's just a good starting point that may not be your ending point when you actually process the image but it's putting you in that zone that is probably very close to where it needs to be. Yep. Okay, Raycroft, you said neither. <laughs> well, oh, I, I'm sorry, you leave your lens cap on. I forgot. All right. Yeah, yeah. That's how that's how the magic happens. <laughs> I, you know, again, I'm more about animal behavior and composition. I need to know my gear. I'm learning all the time. There are definitely tools and menu settings. I'm sure that would help me in my camera and software, but. At this point, I just bounce it around between cloudy and daylight for 98% of what I do. And it all depends on the day and even in the lighting situation. Obviously, like you were saying, Ron, if it's clear and, and light's strong, then I go to daylight. If it's overcast, then I prefer cloudy for the saturation it gives to the colors. But there are times, like on this recent caribou shoot, where I'd bump it back and forth in that rich evening light because there I want that super saturated reddish orange effect. And there are other times I might not. I want to shoot both. So I'll play with that. But we're blessed as photographers nowadays that we can do that in post as well. So you're not locked in. So even though if we shot it in cloudy in the camera, I mean, there's those, all these adjustments we can make in camera raw or in, in whatever software that you're using to edit that can manipulate the file, assuming it's a raw file you've shot in, which I'm sure all of our listeners shoot at as well for stills. So cloudy and, and daylight, I just I just play with those. I keep it simple and, and that's back and forth depending on the lighting situation. Sometimes I use both. But for just the effect, there's a bit of a haze, you know, and all of a sudden I switch it to cloudy. And it's like, whoa, that's better. But it's great knowing that we can play with it in post as well. So the Kelvin settings, I get all of that. I've just never mastered it and, and never I've just jumped between those two for stills. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, they do make those um, light meters, you know, mm-hmm. for Kelvin and, yep. and in the video industry, that really works. And you can sure. really dial it in. But most times we're just want to get the cameras all set up the same is the, is the big thing. And I'll, I'll, oftentimes I'm just looking at the back of the camera saying, ah, that looks pretty good. That looks pretty close. But again, you're probably not using the 
colored calibrated monitor when you're looking at that little monitor on the back of your camera. It's close, but it's not like looking on a color calibrated monitor in a professional studio. That's what I was going to ask you, Mike, is uh, with your video, are you guys using a gray card to get your white balance or are you just using a meter? Well, a lot of times you use white. So you, there's a white balance on a video camera that you can actually hold a white something. You just need to tell the camera this is white in this, this is light. White is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you'll just hit that and it'll put a, a reading and it'll say, oh, it's 48. It's 34. It's 57, whatever. And then we just and if it looks good, if, it, if I do think that is white on the back of the camera, then we do put that into every camera and shoot it that way. All right, so here's more of a, I don't know, I think we'll all have different answers for this. No. So this comes from John Beck, and he said, I haven't listened to everybody else's names, but it's right here on the sheet. So uh, how and would an inspiring wildlife photographer find out what species are in demand for photo and video? Woo. Well, <laughs> here it is. Here's the trade secret. <laughs> It's it's hard. You you have to you have to recognize your audience. If what you I mean the type of photography you do, what you're good at, what you produce, you know what you're passionate about because we all want to be excited about what we're filming and photographing first and foremost. When you've built that portfolio, it's going to be as good as it can be because it's what you love to be out there photographing or filming. So I think that's a starting point. And then recognizing, and, and again, there may be some compromise to that to help with some marketing. There may be some other species to add for certain geographic areas, but then where you can apply that and what your dreams are. So there really is, from my opinion, there's no straight answer. It depends. You know, some of the people, the guests we've had on these podcasts shoot certain subjects or species because it's highly marketable in the areas where they live if they're doing shows. If the publication world is something that interests you, well, what's getting attention there? It's a matter of recognizing that and building that. But it, to me, it's a moot point if you're not passionate about that subject. You'll be the most creative and create the best work, something that you really love doing. So I think that starts with that. And then recognizing where it could be sold. And I mean, the world's your oyster. There's no right answer, I don't think. You know, you've got social media and those platforms, and maybe there'll be an audience out there for whatever you're photographing. And if you make it clear that your work is available for sale, for print, for publication, as stock, uh, at these various platforms, hopefully it'll get traction. But it's, it's hard to know any one thing because, I mean, photography is, you can't even really express how broad this profession is. It's what we see visually, and it's a matter of interpreting that artistically. That's what gets traction with people. It could be architectural photography. It could be any kind of photography. But for wildlife, you know, there's there are really umpteen different markets. It depends what you're interested in. They're all competitive. You know, they're all hard to get into, but the cream will rise to the top. Those that don't give up and keep producing and, and keep trying, you know, will likely find uh, a market for their work. And, and again, there's many different avenues to, to pursue. That's what I was going to say. I, I think everything is in demand. It's just finding the finding the outlet that that is seeking that content. There's wildlife seekers everywhere. You know, if you happen to be in an area that's got a lot of vibrant flowers, birds, and bloom, well, buy every vibrant image of a bird that has vibrant flowers in it as well. You can just about guarantee it. 
And some people set their whole shooting scene up specifically for that. But it, it, like Mark said, it's just a matter of finding your market. There is a market for everything. But understand, you know, if you get one slammer image of a hummingbird in flight, I wouldn't necessarily recommend you go put yourself out there to birds and bloom because you don't have anything else to go with it. You know, so make sure that if you do find that niche, shoot the heck out of it. It's just like, you know, Mark talking about this experience with the caribou last week, shot it every possible way he could in every possible light scenario he could, shot the stag, shot the the does, shot the prickets. And that's what you've heard us talk about before. When you talk about work in a scene, work in an animal is the same thing. Get it in every possible scenario you can, every possible composition you can, so that when somebody asks for something, you dang sure know that you can look back and find it and produce what they're looking for we did a podcast a while ago about building a portfolio too in generalist versus niche i mean re- revisit that and listen to that uh, because we covered some of this stuff and some of the strategies and tips involved with that yep exactly well speaking to what you just said ron about what mark said is if you're gonna go for let's say a audubon it's all birds right but if you're gonna go sell a Uh, try to sell something in the National Geographic, it may just be one species, but they want everything. They want every season. They want every condition. They want behavior. So you could spend a full year just shooting one thing, but it's going to take you a year to get awesome stuff. But if they know you have awesome stuff, soup to nuts with everything that you can get with that one species, then that's what you need to be shooting. But that's a really difficult market to get into. I'm going to write that down somewhere. But, you know, I said this before the podcast, and one of the questions that came up, you know, go for gold, people. There's no reason not to, you know, keep polishing your art form, keep improving what you're doing, keep practicing, keep training your eye, make sure the images are sharp, work on the composition and go for gold. You never know, you know, hit for the home run, take the big swing. Make sure you have soup to nuts. Yep. (laughs) It's a full meal deal. And, what, and you could do that for a geographic area. You know, the, the, there are niches out there or it can, and, and generalists do well, too. But I, I honestly, from all the success I've seen across this profession, I, I believe that photographers are more often successful when they master a niche than trying to be generalists, unless it's representing a whole area. So if somebody's hired to do a whole portfolio on the Yellowstone ecosystem, well, that's one thing, right? But if they're trying to target a market and they're just, you know, some people do moose. I got it in. And, you know, if they're known for moose, people come to them for moose kind of thing. You know, a good example of that would be like an American dipper, right? So if you wanted to be the best at something, you know, you pick a species like that, that people really just don't have, you know, people see them, but they're pretty drab birds. They're all one color. It's not, not anything to write home about, but then you start watching their behavior then now you're talking. And then if you dig into it, you're going to have to do underwater photography. You're going to have to do every season with photography. You're always going to be around water. I mean, it just is endless and you just need to get everything about that one species. And that could be in huge demand, but you created that demand because you created all these images that show that whole life cycle of that bird. Mm -hmm. So that's a tough thing. I mean, you can go for the, the big time, easy stuff, you know, the bears, the the moose, the caribou. Sorry, <clears throat> the, big it's time. not easy. Big time. Yeah, there we go. Not easy. It's not big. easy. It's it's 
they're easier to find or easier to locate, but it's still really hard to get a, an image that you're super like, ah, this image, this, nobody's ever seen this before or all the can, you know, it's like the caribou that you have with the sunrise silhouette kind of thing. I mean, oh, wait, no, there's just one other one there. Last week I got that, I got the caribou stag and then a, a cow moose walked up to him. Oh, that's yeah. a new See? one. Right. That is something that's a one of a kinder, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that was so funny. One of the things that came up recently, somebody was asking me why I shoot 8K video. You know, isn't 4K good enough? And I'm like, well, yeah, it is. And it's probably fine for a while. But if you have 8K, you're kind of future proofing yourself. So I'm going to, if I have that situation where you get a, a caribou and a moose nose, nose to nose, will I ever see that again in my lifetime? Maybe. But if I shot it on 8K, it's, it's kind of cool to have. Do you know that it's kind of future proofed and, Right. be able to use it for years to come it's like that 12 megapixel sensor from a couple of generations ago i mean it's it has a lot of application at this point still but might not forever just want to clarify i mean the moose and this caribou stag were 10 yards apart in the same frame and they weren't nose to nose but it close enough close enough yeah. to be exciting i couldn't believe it. he was still feeding and eventually he lifted his head i'm like dude look behind you there's a cow moose that makes you look small what's going on <laughs> But, you know, I think, you know, it's a matter of we all love certain subjects. I think it's important to start there when it comes to marketing and finding because your work will be the best it can be when you film and photograph what you love the most. And starting from that and then find a home for it. You know, there'll be there are all kinds of ways. If you listen to Rick and Libby's podcast that went up a couple of weeks ago or so that Michael did and what they do and, and how, I mean, there's so many ways they sell um, art at shows, their prints at shows and, and there's, but publishing it, try different things on and, and in your areas, the best way place to start. If you film near your home, there really are so many markets that are close to home. There's so much going on with local tourism that wants to draw people in for economic reasons to your geographic area and tapping into that is, is a, usually a pretty straightforward place to start. It doesn't have to be a global audience and just grow from there. But again, there's really, it's hard to give one answer. It's just building a, a it's got to be quality too. I mean, the work has to be good to sell on, on a professional level. Yep. Well, and that kind of, he has a follow-up question here, but I think we, we've covered a lot of that already, but I'll just read it. And if you have anything to add, he said, what happens after you build that initial portfolio? How and where do you share and socialize these pictures to market them? You know, it's just a, that's a tough, tough deal. I mean, that's a one what hour. you just said is pretty cool, right? You just find those smaller little markets that may not be hit up as much. If you got a local tourism office that... You know, let's say they're outside of Yellowstone and it's just this new little tourism thing and they need to show, hey, we've got elk in the park or we got bison in the park or we got whatever. Hit them up. I, and I don't think it's more about sharing and socializing. You know, you don't put them on Instagram because that's more for a general audience. You want to go find that one audience that wants to use that image. And, I mean, right. I, yeah, I agree 100 percent. There's still some market potential with Instagram and social marketing because it allows people to see the portfolio quite readily and access or, or contact if they're interested. And you do get some out of left field. You know, things come in on Instagram. Somebody just loves an image that's posted and they want something from it, you know, a print, et cetera, canvas, metal or new clients. 
you know, other other people globally, fine. But you have to be cautious with some of that too. Be smart about what you agree to and, and what correspondence takes place. Use common sense. But I think for somebody starting out closer to home and marketing in those areas works best. And then just continue to tweak quality and tweak marketing and broadening that out. But social, social media is something many professionals argue now you can't avoid if you want to stay in this business long term. It's just, uh, it's a new, it's another way. I mean, we all have websites, right? And websites are a great way to interact with clients and show a breadth of our work. But honestly, how many people go to websites now? I think every website I've probably been to in the past year has been a link through a social media account that I found. I'll go on Instagram. I'll see a photographer. I'm like, wow, this is good stuff. Who is this person? Then I'll hit the link to their website and find it there. I'm not on Google searching websites anymore. Who does that? So I think the social platforms are the best way to be discovered. Uh, and, and then again, like we've talked about in so many podcasts that people should go back to and listen and, and we'll re- and it'll come up again over and over. It's just how to be most effective on these platforms and make them work to your benefit and how to properly present on them. All these things, you know, you have to be aware of when engaging on them. But I think it's it's been the best way, I, I think, in, in the past three years for me to show representation of my portfolio to people and and prospective clients. So I think it's important to incorporate social media into it now. And the other thing too is so many people are more readily to engage in it. So if you have a new client, you meet somebody, even the local tourism office who's looking for something, you can say, here's my Instagram page, check it out and you can DM me or direct message me from there. It's just a far easier way. And, And the other flip side to that is, I mean, I got my bill from my website today and I have to clarify it. I'm not sure if it's it, anyway, it was 700 bucks for the year. You know, Instagram takes time, but it doesn't cost anything. So, it's, yep. you know, you can put content, uh, contact links on there and stuff too. So I have like 10 more questions. There was no way we're going to get through all of them. So I'm just going to pick two. And one of them is more for an update on what I'm doing. So we can just end with that just because I have a little blurb on that. But the last one that, that has come in is how high is too high for ISO? I'll, I'll start because I think I'm probably the most conservative this way. You know, the, it's I'll go right back very quickly to the beginning to be able to go from shooting 50 speed slide film in a Velvia and 100 speed Provia push to 200 for 15 years to where we are now is it's just, you know, I've got the little emoji going on where my mind is blown and what we can do. So we're so fortunate with the capabilities of modern photography, the high ISO, I mean, it's way beyond high compared to old school. It's not even funny. So 800 ISO, I mean, what would we have given to have that 20 years ago? What insane. So it's phenomenal. I shoot at 800 whenever I can. Bright light, I drop it to four. I can't remember the last time I went below four. I'll shoot at eight for the most part, overcast conditions, etc. I'll bump it to 1,000 when I need to. This is on the Nikon D850. It may be capable of more. I mean, when I'm pushed, I'll go to 16. I have gone to two. I'll admit it just to our audience. I've gone to two, but I (laughs) 2,000 ISO. And I know there are so many people out there that have gone way beyond that and love it. And, you know, Michael brought up a case earlier that he might share with us as far as the result that way. Sometimes if it's a unique behavior and it's the only way you're going to get the sharp images to bump the ISO. If, you know, one time in central Alaska, I was camping with my wife. It was dusk. I looked up a ridgeline 100 yards away was a cow moose and a calf and a black wolf trying to separate the two. I watched in wonder 
with no ability to photograph. That was before these ISO capabilities that we have now. I would shoot that at 5,000 or 6,000 ISO because what was happening. So I'll compromise in those situations. But for my primary images that I market, I won't go over 16, really. And I really, I really, really, really try hard to keep it at 800 or 1,000. But I know I'm, I'm the most conservative of us all and, and may be capable of more. That's just what I see. I experiment now and then. I'll put it up on my big monitors in my office and zoom in at 100%. And I've noticed some difference. And I want to make sure that everything I put out maintains that original Velvia standard where there's no grain. And at 800 and 1,000 ISO on a D850, I don't see grain. I'm not concerned with wherever this image is going. So that's where I'm at right now. Six months from now, who knows what I'm photographing with. And maybe it's doubled by then. But today, that's what I do. Uh-huh. So for me, it depends on what the situation is. I mean. Like Mark said, the the moose with the wolf that you would shoot that at whatever you had to to get the image. Um, I think if you listen back to Charles Gladser, the first time we had Charles on the podcast, he talked about you know northern lights, and then they had a pack of wolves that were howling and kind of moved in around their camp, and he videoed that at one hundred two thousand ISO. And his response: somebody somebody asked him, "Well, why'd you push the ISO that high, or why would you do that and and make it that grainy?" His response was, well, "What'd you shoot it at?" Because <laughs> <laughs> he was the only one there that was getting any video, and basically he's getting eye shine and he's getting the silhouette of some of these wolves as they walked around. But he got that, and I think it it depends greatly on the situation, and all you're going to get primarily is just capturing behavior. Now, if you are talking about an image that you're going to be able to utilize, you know, we all think about noise when we think about ISO, but the other thing that we don't think about, and and Mark, you're probably the best known of the three of us for pushing the color in your images and the saturation of color in your images, that's what kind of is your signature, in my opinion. But the higher you go with the ISO, it limits your ability to push that color. It does start to affect the color that's produced in that image as well. And I think that's the thing that you forget about. So it depends on what you want to do with the image. If you're just trying to document, I think you can you can handle going a little higher. And I think modern cameras, you can probably go to 3,200, 3, 4,000, still be able to get images that document uh, behavior or document a situation. But if you want to, if you're looking to make a, a, a print of an image, I probably would say I don't go over 1600 and I I do go a little higher than Mark does, but to get a print worthy image, I think 1600 is about as far as I would push it. And I, you know, also Michael, I know is going to comment on video as well. Um, So I'll turn it over to you, but that's, that would kind of be where I stand. Yeah. I, I, I'm the same way. I'll, I'll hit the two thousands every now and then for stills. But I'm using this new Sony here recently, and it seems to perform pretty good at those ISOs. So who knows what they're doing? Or, But I haven't blown up anything, so who knows if it's really good. But if you look at it exploded on the monitor, it's still holding up pretty darn good. But for video, we shoot at 32 all the time. But you can't see that detail on video. It's not, you know, but we're also shooting for really slow shutter speed. So if we're shooting... A lot of times we're shooting at a 60th of a second. So at 3,200, 
that we can shoot awful dark, right? And a lot of times we have to do that depending on what we're covering or whatever's going on. So that's a lot of times is my go-to. If I feel like I don't have enough light to shoot a really good still, I just switch over to video. So I'll shoot video early and late, way past when a still photographer can shoot and still get really usable stuff. But I'll push it to 32 a lot. And sometimes we'll go even a little bit higher. And that depends on your output. If you're going to just output to regular HD, it's it, you're never going to know. If you're going to put it on a 4K monitor, then you're probably going to see some some noise in there. But nobody's doing 4K. Well, YouTube, I guess, is. And Netflix is doing a few things at, four, at uh, 4K. But it's going to become a thing. But for right now, it's not anything to worry about. Well, and we could go a little further even and just for the percentage of our audience that isn't really selling and are just doing social media stuff, then it doesn't really matter at all. Get away with anything on Instagram right. and stuff like that. But obviously that doesn't fit into the monetization of the images if they compromise it to that extent. Yep. All right. So the last question is, uh, it says, Michael, update on the Sony camera. So I don't have a huge update on the Sony camera other than I've pretty much put the Canon cameras away. <laughs> I just haven't shot my Canons in for still images in probably since August. And I just made a, a conscious decision. I'm like, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to try it. I'm going to see how it works out. And I've forced myself to shoot everything on the Sony. I ended up buying a bigger lens. So I have a 100 to 400 and then um, the 24 to 70. And then today I just bought the new a7 R four. So no. I've been hearing, Ooh. hearing lots of good things about that camera. So I decided, well, I figured you would wait for the a nine too. Well, and that's, a, that's a trade off, right? Everybody that I talked to you. So I got a chance to play with an a nine up in Alaska that somebody had, I just held it and looked through it and focused. And it was super fast, super responsive shoots. What? 20 frames a second. It's incredible, but it's only a 24 megapixel camera. The one that I'm using now is the a seven R three. I think it's a 42 megapixel. I'm not exactly sure. It's in the forties. The new one, the a seven R four is a 61 megapixel, but it'll still crank out eight frames or something a second. But I've talked to people that have used it and they're like, it's amazing. It's so super fast on this focus. It's super fast with everything that it does. So I'm kind of curious to try it out. I ended up buying a 70 to 200. I've got a project coming up where I'm going to be shooting a lot indoors. So I needed a 2.8. I would have really liked to have bought the 200 to 600 because I thought I'd been hearing nothing but good about that lens. But for this project, I wasn't going to make it with a 6.3 at 600 aperture so i figured i better get a 2.8 and it's the g series whatever is their uh highest end lens that they have so i'm really excited to use that and i can give a report on a future podcast as far as how that's going to go but everything i shot in alaska well i went out one day with nothing but a 24 to 70 and that sony so i'm pack carrying this tiny little package with me but it was awesome because it forced me to think a lot differently and it forced me to use that particular camera. I didn't have anything else to, to try out. And I think I got some of the best images I shot up there in Alaska this whole summer using that camera with that, that combination. And you look at the quality of the images, it's mind-blowing when you're looking at a 40. You guys know because of the D850 shoots at high-resolution, mm -hmm. big megapixel cameras. My 
Canon was always 20, I think it's 23 or 22 or 24 megapixels, that 1DX Mark II. So I'm super curious to try it out and super excited to try the A7R4. And supposedly, this is just a teaser at this point because it's just coming off of a, a rumor site, but the Nikon Z8, which is the mirrorless camera that I'm waiting for, I think, based on the rumors, and of course, you can count on about 60% of those being true, is going to have the same sensor because Nikon uses Sony sensors, so it's going to have the same 61 megapixel sensor the same tracking ability with autofocus and supposedly dual cf express uh, memory card slots so you can use the you know the fastest card available and some of the highest volume cards available because you can get them at one terabyte uh, with that cf express technology and have all the benefits of of mirrorless so that's the one i'm waiting on i i've thought and thought and thought about jumping on the sony bandwagon because of the video capability but i think nikon is starting to adopt some of that so i'm gonna i'm i'm in a wait and see mode but uh mirrorless is in my not quite immediate future but it's definitely in my direct future um as far as what's next the guy i bought that camera from it was a local or it was a small shop but it's down in texas that i use Mm -hmm. um he told me when i called him yesterday just see if they had one in stock he said we can't keep them in stock. The Sony, he said, Sony is killing every brand out there right now just because of what they're doing. Yep, they but are. I think once Nikon and Canon get, I don't know why it's taking them so long, but once they get this figured out, I think it's kind of cool because you don't have to change your, you know, those lenses that you have will work. Yep. And then what you were saying earlier, Mark, that 500 that is made for that Z series camera is pretty spectacular. It was yeah, super I- light. And I think it's it's easy to see why Nikon's behind because they're using the same sensors. And Sony's not going to release the sensor to them until they've already got their product out there. That's, you know, from a marketing standpoint. So I can see why that's delayed a little bit. But I don't know why, you know, the technological advances, there's no reason why these other companies can't be making the same jumps that Sony's been making. And they've been doing it, you know, every two years while... Canon and Nikon, they'll they'll wait three or four years to put the next version out. Sony's just dumping it all out there, doing a fantastic job of that. Something else I want, I want to just throw out there after this uh, wildlife photography convention I was speaking at in Algonquin Park last weekend, uh, the photographer there who was shooting these Nikon Z or Z6 and 7, one thing that she brought up that I found quite interesting to hear was, you know, everybody, when they make the switch to the mirrorless, when it's, there's no sound for the shutter and it's an adjustment to know how many images you're taking. There's this initial discomfort to changing. She had a different point of view after shooting them for this long, for a few months that, or more, she got them as soon as they came out, that she's noticed the tranquility, the peacefulness of not having a sound. And as subtle as the mirror flapping is in a DSLR, animals do notice it you know unless it's a bugling elk in your face animals do notice it and when she was she was uh, last week in the great bear rainforest doing spirit bearers and she was below this platform she 
and describe the people above the platform, the sound of the cameras totally distracted her from what she's used to now with no sound. So by, you know, if you're photographing, you know, a timid animal, it's, it makes a big difference. But she went beyond that and said, you know what? These cameras have really helped her immerse herself in the situation, in the natural sounds without hearing the brr, 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 that we're all used to. And then the funny side of it is, you know, when uh, hosting or, or guiding people in photography, you don't know who's shooting something when they are. There's that, but they also don't know when you are. There's that fun side of it too. But it was kind of refreshing to, and inviting to hear that perspective that, the silence of these cameras, once you get used to it, is actually better in the wilderness. There's no sound. Yeah, it's taken me a while to get used to that, and I like it. I, I'll love it when all you guys are shooting silent. For when I'm shooting video, I could actually record some <laughs> audio. I don't even try to record audio nowadays because all you hear is... <laughs> you know, so it's going to be sweet when you guys all switch. But I, I can totally relate to that. It is... It's a... It's a whole different thing. But exactly what you said is a lot of times that's a giveaway. If there's three or four people shooting something and you're focused on something over here and nothing's going on, so you're not shooting, but you hear shutters going off behind you, you're like, what am I missing? And you turn around and you get it. Nowadays, that's not going to happen. You're just not going to know when somebody's shooting something that's really good that you're just completely missing. Yeah, you can stay on your game. Yep. All right. So awesome. we've got a bunch more, but I think let's carry these through because we're already at an hour, almost an hour and 30 minutes. Um, Woohoo! Let's uh, save Sorry. these rest for the next go around and encourage people to send in more because this is kind of fun to just, uh, there's no right or wrong answer. There's, you know, everything we throw out there is just what we do. So we can do plenty more. Keep them coming. Yeah, absolutely. We, we'd love to hear from all of you. And you can DM us on our Wild and Exposed Instagram or on Facebook or on our website. You can obviously see more of our team's work on all of those platforms, as well as on YouTube at Wild and Exposed Podcast. And no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button to give us that positive review, that five-star rating, and a thumbs up, as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. Also, on YouTube, make sure to hit that bell so that when we do put up exciting new content, you'll be notified and we'll have it available for your viewing enjoyment. I want to take a moment and thank our hardworking and talented producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does behind the scenes to bring this podcast to you for your listening enjoyment. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.